Kia ora, good morning everybody. Good to see you all. Is it still raining outside? Perfect, perfect. A little bit of rain. Hey, um, most of you know that I've been away uh, for a while walking the Camino when I was, when I was in Spain. Um, the tradition is on this walk as a pilgrim. You finish, you walk, you have a wash, and then you go and find some folks who are staying with you in the hostel, and you spend time with them, and you just get to know them. It's just a real simple way of doing community on a day-by-day basis. And we'd often share about what we saw, what we experienced in that day's walk. So here I was sitting down, and uh, somebody waltzed up to our table, sat down, joined in the conversation, and they said, man, you wouldn't believe it, but I went to this church today, and... um, they had this great story about the three wise men. And uh, well, what was it about? What was so good? Well, they, the story describes how these three wise men actually came from three different parts of the globe. And now they all represent humanity and its various cultures and forms. And so it was this, these three wise men representing the world that came and visited themselves upon Jesus in the manger. I was like, oh... I said, um, how many men did you say? And he said, three. And I said, what makes you think there were three wise men that went to the manger? He said, well, there were three presents. I said, yeah, well, how many men does it take to buy one present? (laughs) And then I said, "Um, didn't it say that the wise men came from the east? So they all came from one direction. Oh, yeah. And so we slowly unpacked what was being set up to be this great revelation about how it was that the wise men were brought by God to one place to represent the whole earth that had come to worship Jesus. And I thought, you know, that's a great story, but it's a myth. It's a great story, but it doesn't add up. There's nothing there to back it up. And so I had to quietly, gently sort of... um, how would you put it? Reinforce the truth as opposed to listen to the myth. All that to say that our Christian theology can be shaped by lots of well-meaning myth and well-meaning ideas that can flow out of what is principally a good story, but it ends up being more or an exaggerated uh, extension of what it is that the Bible actually describes. And so this morning, When we look at this next character in our Behold series, uh, we find that Mary has a lot of this associated with her. Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so the question is, what do we do with Mary? What do we do with Mary? Because when it comes to the church tradition, over 2,000 years of history, uh, there's been a lot placed upon Mary and a lot taken away from Mary. And so over this tradition, we, particularly in the Protestant tradition, have looked at the long-standing Catholic tradition and have said, ooh, we think you're overstating things a bit there about Mary. And Mary ends up being the sort of the, the crux of our disagreement in many respects with the, the long-standing traditions of the Catholics. And the problem with that is that we don't just react, we recoil. When you recoil, you spring back. And you don't spring back necessarily from the Catholics, but you spring back from the person of Mary. You're going, well, they've got this extreme view of who she is. They place her right up there with God himself. And so we're like, ooh, we don't want to be associated with that so much, so we push back and we stay away and we just give her a nice little place in the manger. 
don't we? And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm, I'm not, not attempting to become controversial in any sense, but what I want to do is just describe a little bit of how it is that we've ended up in this place where we Protestants have pushed back on uh, Catholic doctrine and how it is that we need to find and rediscover again the person of Mary so that we can actually give her the right place within our framework of the story of Christmas and our understanding of God's story. So um, the first thing I want to do is um, bring up a, a quote from the papal preacher. Now, this guy, uh, Father Castellanasa, has been serving within the Vatican for 30 years, will be 30 years next year, as the papal preacher. In other words, he preaches to the household that serves in the Vatican. Okay, It's a very high position. And uh, he has got some concerns as well about the role that Mary plays within the Catholic Church. Let's read what he says. He says, We Catholics have contributed to making Mary unacceptable to Protestants by honouring her in ways that are often exaggerated and ill-advised, and above all, by not keeping devotion to her clearly within a biblical framework that demonstrates her subordinate role with respect to the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus himself. Mariology in recent centuries has become a non-stop factory of new titles, new devotions, often in polemic against Protestants, sometimes using Mary, our common mother, as a weapon against them. Now, that's a pretty heavy statement, isn't it? In fact, you'd think it comes straight out of um, the middle of Protestantism, but it doesn't. It comes right from the heart of the Vatican. And so here we are. I put that down there today just saying, um, so I can put something solid upon which I can walk upon this morning and not have people think that I'm just beating up on um, a part of God's church. The Catholic tradition is 2,000 years old. And over that period of time, it has preserved the tradition of the Christian faith for centuries and centuries and centuries. We, the Protestant church, the protesting church, uh, protested in many respects against some strange theologies and developed our own traditions, which don't mean that we are in ourselves perfect either. Uh, but what we're trying to do is to find the right place for Mary today. And so when we see this story and we read about this story, uh, we realize that it's very easy to take a, a biblical figure like Mary, and because we're so impressed with her, we attribute to her more than she is capable of, okay, or more than she has done. And so what we're doing is we're building a theology out of adoration, all right? So high regard, high respect. And this is where all of this understanding of Mary has come from. It's come out of the highest respect and the highest regard for her. Let me give you a little example. I've got some pictures here in a moment to tell some more stories, but um, we just heard Michael this morning lead us in communion, and he mentioned the story about the Ark of the Covenant, how the Ark of the Covenant is the, in the Old Testament times was the place where God resided, okay, within this, uh, literally within this wooden casket, okay, that was deemed to be the place where God resided for purposes of worship. Well, it's very easy now to translate that same picture about the Ark of the Covenant to Mary and her womb. So Mary's womb was deemed to be the Ark of the Covenant because it carried the Son of God. Does that make sense? See, see how this flows? And so therefore, Mary's womb is sacred. Okay, And being sacred 
couple of things you've got to hang on to there is that they would suggest that Mary never had children, even though the scriptures prove otherwise, because her womb was so sacred that no one but the Son of God could have ever inhabited it. And because Mary's womb is so sacred, um, surely she was a holy person who would never have tasted death because her sinless perfection that she had when she was in this place of, of being the, the mother to Jesus would not have allowed her body to decay. And so therefore she ascended into heaven, surely. And this is where the Catholic tradition has rolled out over years. Uh, so for, from around about the, the fourth century, this was some of the thinking. In 1950, which isn't that long ago, Pope Pius XII actually affirmed as legitimate Catholic doctrine that Mary ascended into heaven, has never seen the grave as we understand it. And so is at the right hand of Jesus, and we'll see what she does there in a moment because of other things that are attributed to her. All of this comes out of a high view, but as we can see, the story starts to get distorted and our worship as a response to this becomes but more confused. So here we have another picture that relates a story. This is a picture of the wedding feast at Cana. John chapter two records this. And here we find in the story that the, the party's going well, except they ran out of wine, which no good wedding in this day could ever afford to do. And so Mary leans over to Jesus as they were guests in this wedding. And she says to Jesus, they have run out of wine. Okay, which was an invitation for Jesus to do something about that. And Jesus' response is, woman, my time has not yet come. He said, woman, it wasn't a, an insult to call her that. It was an, a term of endearment. He says, woman, my time has not yet come. But Mary pushes on and she turns to the servants and she says to the servants, just do what he asks. And Jesus turns gallons of water into wine, the best wine that the wedding had had that whole week. So, here we have a story where Mary actually petitions Jesus to do something to actually fix the problem. You see what's happening here? So now it's very easy to say, well, that's Mary's role. Mary's role is to ask Jesus to get things done. So therefore, if we want to get things done, we should pray to Mary so that she can talk to Jesus who gets things done, right? So you can see how easy that theology of intercession begins. Uh, and, and we end up with this place where it's like um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit and Mary all operating together. We call that a, 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 a quinity? I don't know. We've got a trinity. I'm not sure what's going on here. But in practice, this is what starts to emerge. We take another story towards the end of uh, Jesus' ministry where he's in the cross and we're told in John's gospel again that from the cross, Jesus looks at Mary his mother, and looks at John, the writer of the gospel, and he says to Mary, Mary, this is your son. And then he looks to John and says, John, this is your mother. All right. And it said that Mary went into live in John's house from that time onwards. From this interaction, theologians have said that Mary is therefore the mother of the church. Because John was a John, was, John came in as a son. And so here we have Mary, the mother of the church. And so these, these theologies start to develop around these great times of uh, appreciation, 
and uh, value for her as a person, but they all start to grow into something way bigger than they were ever intended, way outside of the biblical narrative, okay, that tells us where Mary's place was. And we realize that, you know, Mary's place was one of, of great example to us, and she appears throughout the story of Scripture time and again. You know, we see her throughout the Gospels, and sometimes in the Gospels, she doesn't actually appear to be the person whom we would like to think she should be. Because uh, in Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 6, she turns up when Jesus is ministering with her other sons. The scripture is very clear about that. So she has got other family with other sons. And they want to talk to Jesus because they have concluded that he is out of his mind. And they've come to take him home. Okay? Now, most mothers would do that if their son was walking around claiming to be the son of God. The only problem with this is that he was the son of God. And, uh, and so Mary, even though she'd had this amazing experience of bringing him into the world, still hadn't got the complete picture in her mind of what it was that her son was born to do. So what we're talking about here is the difference between veneration and worship. Veneration and worship. Um, veneration means... And to honor or very much respect someone. So you can have great respect, great honor for somebody, and you can put them as a fantastic example of what Christian life looks like. And you can have a, a picture of somebody. You know, we have pictures of, in, in homes of Martin Luther King, that great Baptist who just happened to be there within the civil rights movement leading the change, being the change. Okay, so he's one of these great people who we look to. Uh, and we know last century, course, Mother Teresa, she, you know, she took it upon herself to, to live amongst the poor. And she said it was her mission in life to give the dying dignity in those final days and hours of their life. That was one of her callings. And so we look at these people and we go, wow, that's amazing. And we venerate them as great examples. Uh, however, it's a, it's a fine line between veneration and worship, isn't it? See, worship is to express adoration towards the eternal creator, to say there is none above you, there is none besides you. And so when it comes to some of the confusion that is wrapped around uh, some of the Catholic tradition in respect to Mary, it's a very fine line between veneration and worship. In fact, when we were in Spain just recently, uh, my daughter and I, Brittany, we went into a church and there was um, amazing artwork as all these churches have, all embossed in gold and the paintings are just unbelievable. And uh, I turned to Brittany and I said, I said, have you noticed in the artwork that Jesus hasn't been born yet or he's left the building? Because there was nothing in that whole church that had anything to do with Jesus. It was a it was a chapel completely dedicated to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Okay, And so here we have an, have, have, uh, an extrapolation of what was intended for Mary's life, growing to some place that she was never intended to be. And, uh, and this is the tension and this is the challenge we face. Now, let me give you a, a little more down-to-earth example of what I'm describing here. Um, if you come to our home, you might see in the garden... Um, a little statue stands about this high um, of a monk. And he's got a garden spade in one hand 
and the scriptures in the other. Okay, his name is Saint Fiacre, F-I-A-C-R-E. Born in Ireland around about 600 years AD, uh, ministered in France. And his claim to fame was that he had a tremendous heart for the poor, but he was a gardener. And so he took the things that were natural to him, the gardens, and he grew food and encouraged the poor to do the same. And he was recognized as a saint because of the miraculous things that God did in and through his gardening ministry. Okay, so um, that's no problem. Um, Michaela found this, my wife found this at a garden shop and she came home with Fiacre and she stuck him in the lounge and she said, this guy's going in our garden. And I said, no, he's not. I said, we don't have any of these idolatrous things in our garden. And, uh, and she explained to me, she says, no, 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 we don't, we're not doing that, of course. And of course, what happens is Fiacre sits in the garden. He gets moved around occasionally. Sometimes he's with the vegetables, other times he's with the roses, depending on where Michaela's feeling that uh, he looks best. And we, re- we remember that God will use gardening, he uses gardens, he provides food, and we are reminded of that through this little statue. Now, it's a fine line, isn't it, from there to say, what's Fiacre doing in the vegetables? He's blessing the garden. You see what I'm saying? It's a real fine line, isn't it? Now, we don't believe he's blessing the garden. We just think he reminds us that a garden can be a ministry, and if you have an excess, obviously, you bless those who don't have. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Um, Within our extended family, we have folks who are within the Catholic tradition, and probably two decades ago now, they were very excited about their local priest who had been to Rome and was given a statue that came from the Vatican. And he was going around the uh, the homes of the people in his parish and bringing the statue into their homes, And from their perspective, the statue was coming into their home to bless their home. Now, that's an extension, isn't it? That's a stretch. And it's a very fine line, but it's a very real reality within this tradition. Now, some of us might um, think this is a bit odd uh, to do this sort of thing, but I can see how it is that it develops within the mindset of people who are saying, how do we best devote ourselves to God and reflect upon the great work and the great lives of people who have gone before us. Now, when I was raised uh, in my Christian life, I was um, always tuning in in the early morning to Derek Prince on Radio Rima. You'd turn on the radio and you'd get a Bible study with Derek Prince around about 6.30 in the morning. You know, have my alarm set and the first thing I'd hear was doom, 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 doom. Good morning, it is... The Word of God with Derek Prince. Now, Derek reminded me of all sorts of things about how it is to live a Christian life, but I never once got a photo of Derek and stuck it amongst the the spinach, you know, (laughs) because um, I didn't need to. I knew that, you know, Derek would love me to bless people with good food if I could do that. Uh, The difference, I think, between the tradition of hundreds of years ago is they didn't have photographs, okay, so they had statues, Statues to remind you of people. And so this whole tradition rolls out. And what I'm trying to say here is that we have to draw this fine line between uh, what we call adoration versus worship. And we have to peel back the layers of this 
so that when we stop and we consider Mary uh, and all that she brings to the church and all that she is as a person, was as a person, that we don't get stuck by looking at the Catholic tradition and going, whoops, they've just taken it too far and therefore I'm going to recoil, take a step back and just leave Mary as a little ceramic figure in the, the manger, by the manger there. Does that make sense? So from now on, what I want to do is just drill into Mary and who she was and what she brings to us as the church. The first thing I want to say is uh, this word here, Anawim. Anawim was a, a group of people who served within the temple or who served within local synagogues. And this was a group of people who were very poor, usually, not always poor, but certainly poor in as much as they appreciated that God was the one they depended upon entirely. Uh, later on in this story, we will, in a couple of weeks' time actually, we're going to look at the characters of Simeon and Anna who were in the temple when Jesus was brought in uh, for his um, dedication when he was eight days old. These people were of the same category, Anna Ween, people who served in the temple. They were totally dependent upon God and, uh, and often very, very poor. And so uh, Mary was within that tradition. And we believe that she was only young, maybe 13, maybe 14, maybe 15, 16 years old at the most. And so here we have the beginning of something very new amongst a very, uh, very, very righteous group of people, but who were very dependent upon God. And this formed their whole understanding of whom God is and his mission to the world. So let's pick up this story. Last week, we looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth and how in their old age, they were going to have a baby called John the Baptist. And so the story sort of connects with their story. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be, as you would. Well, the first thing I want to do is just unpack this understanding of marriage and what it was in the day. Um, when it says there that she was pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, um, that pledge we easily associate with what we would call our engagement process. You know, like if you're going to be married, you, you get engaged to be married and you set a date for the wedding and everything builds towards that date. When it was um, happening in this period of time, it was far more, um, well, how would you say, far more significant, far more meaningful for two families to get together and agree upon uh, really the life outcomes of their children by agreeing to the marriage of their children, one to another. And so therefore, when they were betrothed, and this is the term that's technically used in this day, betrothed to one another, uh, it was really as solid as a marriage. That connection, that relationship, that agreement was very much like a marriage. So later on we would see, and we're not seeing it today, but in the story it talks about how an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and Joseph had in mind to quietly divorce Mary when he found that she was pregnant. Okay, quietly divorce her. So to get out of this betrothal meant that there needed to be a divorce. So that just shows you how high this level of relationship was. And so... For Mary, um, this was a real deal because her betrothal, her engagement, 
uh, meant that they lined up the wedding, did everything planned towards it, families came together, and it wasn't until after they were married that they went away as husband and wife, consummated their relationship, uh, slept together, and became husband and wife in the traditional sense. So here we have Mary, and she has been greeted by this angel. Uh, and it said to her, it's in the final verse that we've got up there, it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Which is perfectly understandable, isn't it? What really is happening here is the angel has appeared and says, Mary, God loves you and we have a plan for your life. Which is fantastic at one level, as long as the plan is something that you'd like the idea of. But Mary had no idea what this was going to be. And even after she got told, we'll see signs that she had doubts, but she still had faith to believe. And so let's see how the story unfolds itself. It says here, But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Excuse me. Just got back from France, still got a frog in my throat. But but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. Remember, Jacob is Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked? the angel, since I'm a virgin. Now let's just have a quick look at what Mary is being told here before she asks that leading question. She's just being told that this son is going to encapsulate all of Israel's history. This boy of hers is going to sit on David's throne. He's going to minister to the descendants of Jacob, all of Israel, that's all the 12 tribes, and he will reign forever over everything that God has in store. So she's just been told this story, and immediately her mind goes back to the, the harsh re- or the simple reality of, so how's this going to happen? <laughs> you know, how's this going to happen? Um, you know, her wedding date might have been quite a way off. I mean, if it was within the week, she might have thought, oh, yeah, okay, Joseph and I are going to have a baby boy and we'll call him Jesus. No, 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 this isn't going to happen. This would, we're talking immediately. And so she asks the obvious question, how is this going to be? Because I'm a virgin. I haven't slept with a man, okay? And so the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month for no word from God will ever fail. So here the angel explains to her basically that the Holy Spirit is going to conceive within her miraculously a child and she will fall pregnant through this uh, miraculous transaction, okay? But immediately the, uh, the angel backs it up with a point of reference which says, oh, by the way, if you don't think this is very possible, just check in with your cousin Elizabeth. You know the one who was really old? really old, and her husband Zechariah. Well, Elizabeth, who no one thought was going to have any children, is now six months pregnant. And so 
here is the angel just reaffirming for Mary that you know, her faith is not misplaced, that she can trust what is being said here, which leads us to Mary's response. And, and this is where Mary becomes, I think, you know, on that journey to being elevated as somebody who is a really wonderful example of faith to us, because she says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Well, the angel's job was complete. Unlike with Zechariah, when Zechariah started to argue with the whole idea of his wife having a baby, we saw that last week, and so the angel had to strike him dumb. In this case, Mary's response was, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And so we see this obedience, this obedience that comes out of faith and a, and a desire to serve the Lord in a way that she wouldn't even really fully understood what this had meant. And many of us have been on these journeys. When we surrender our lives to God, when we say, come to the front of a church, when we get baptized and we say, God, I'm giving it all to you. I've got a rough idea what this looks like by surrendering my life to you. I'm not fully sure, but this is a journey of faith. Well, this is Mary's moment. This is when she's saying exactly the same thing. She's saying, I'm the Lord's servant. So if I'm the Lord's servant, he's the boss. I do, do what he asks me to do. You can't be a servant and then dictate your own terms, can you? Those two things just don't go together. Uh, and then he, she says, may the word be fulfilled in me. In other words, this word from God that the angel has delivered, may it be fulfilled in me. And so we're given this picture uh, of Mary as being someone who, out of her uh, humility, um, she's in a place now where she can receive this word from God. You know, she has put to death or laid to rest the things that get in the way, the arguments that we easily have with God when it comes to his will being done rather than ours. Because we are always in this battle and it's just an ongoing tension until we surrender our will and our purpose in life to God's purposes. So let's see what Mary does. Well, of course, Mary does probably what any one of us would have done. She races off to Elizabeth to check in to see whether she really is pregnant. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because that would be affirming for her that the angel who spoke to her about her getting pregnant might be on uh, the right track. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to the town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. That's pretty amazing stuff, eh? Because Mary would probably barely be showing the signs of pregnancy, but immediately um, Elizabeth confirms to her that there's a child that's been conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit. And she's speaking, and her, her child, John, inside her womb at six months, is leaping in this moment in, in sort of a, a resonating with this child, Jesus, who's yet to be born, but only just conceived. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? This is Elizabeth still speaking. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. Somehow, um, Elizabeth knows in her spirit, because the Holy Spirit's speaking to her, that that transaction, that dialogue that happened between 
Gabriel, the angel, and Mary went smoothly. Blessed are you who believed. Mary, you're, you're blessed because you believed. You didn't argue with God. You didn't argue with his will for your life. And because of that, you're blessed. And Mary's response comes straight out of her own experience, her own life experience, her own limited life experience. And we could argue, we'll say that her song, Mary's song, sorry, I should have had an S in there, Mary's song is an Anawim perspective on life. And we see that this view of life that she has is very much in keeping with the way that Jesus is going to minister. And so uh, without trying to overstate her direction in his life, you can see the foundation of what it is that is sowed into Jesus' ministry by these next words. This is what Mary does when she, what she says when she responds to um, Elizabeth's uh, word. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. Let's just stop there for a second. Um, it could easily be translated, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now in Latin terms, what we're going to read is called the Magnificat. That in Catholic tradition is called the Magnificat. And that is, um, it means that um, this is the magnification, if you like, of, of God through Mary. Okay, so Mary here is magnifying God. Start again. And Mary said, my soul magnifies or glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Notice here she's talking about herself as Anawim, the humble state of a servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Okay? She's blessed, but holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. And it's here in that last sentence that we get to see this point of difference that Mary brings when she describes whom God is. Because the things that she's described are very common in Psalms, that God is the one who scatters the armies, pulls down the proud and the arrogant, but he is the one who pulls people down or puts them to one side because of the proud nature of their innermost thoughts. And it's here where the Anawim have that special relationship with God. Because the humble in the truest sense of the word. The challenge when you're living in a temple like Mary did, and as we'll see later, Simeon and Anna did, is that people would see you in your humble condition, on your knees, having no money, probably living in, in, in relatively um, poor clothes or housing, and they would look upon them and say, oh, wow. You're amazing. You're so humble. You know? And their innermost thoughts would be like, yeah, I know. <laughs> and in the moment that they go, yeah, I know, they'll be going, oh no. I've got to go and scrape my heart against the altar of God again to get rid of that innermost thought. Do you know what I mean? So they know that worship is about the innermost thoughts. They know that worship is about what it is that God sees, not what others see. And so this is, this is why I believe that Mary comes across as somebody chosen because it's at this level of her innermost thoughts that God sees her heart. And that's why she's a great example to us. 
That's why she's a, a wonderful example of what true worship is all about. Someone who has dealt with and continues to deal with the innermost thoughts of their being. The innermost thoughts of their being. So not proud, not pretentious, not arrogant. But uh, as she has said, as she has prophesied, people will call me blessed. Holy is his name. Okay? People call me blessed, but holy is his name. And then she goes on to say, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Two things I want to comment on there. Firstly, in the 1980s in Nicaragua, uh, when that country was led by General Noriega, it was illegal to recite the Magnificat. It was illegal to use it in any public form of worship, any form of public worship. Why? Because in that prayer, you are praying what? He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Noriega and his crew didn't want people praying to God that he would be humbled and brought down. So this prayer was censored. You weren't allowed to pray this prayer. Does it make sense? Yeah, why? Because people are saying that God is the God of the, the great reversal. The proud shall be humbled and the humbled shall be raised up. And not only that, but when we see towards the end of this, this letter here, we find that Mary somehow in her gracious, humble wisdom recognizes that this is a promise that is going to all the nation of Israel and beyond. And by remembering um, in her story here, in her prophecy here, that this nation of Israel is going to be the seed by which all the nations will be blessed. And her child is the critical factor in all of that. And so when we look at Mary, what do we see? What do we see? We see somebody who is um, bathed in humility, nurtured in an environment of worship, humble because of what's going on in her heart, not because society or the position she holds demands it, but there's a genuine humility there. Somebody who in all simplicity would be a fantastic mum, you would hope, because she's already identified that her life is about others, which as we know, is what mums are good at. Fair to say? And so this morning, when we unpack what I've said, I want you to walk away today um, not hearing me push back on a whole lot of Catholic traditions, but raising up Mary to put her in a place where over this Christmas period, when you have her in your nativity set or you see her on Christmas cards, that you look at her and you're reminded of the goodness of God through the humility of a, of a woman whose life was completely dedicated to his purpose. That you would take the pictures and that you would create in your own heart and mind an understanding of how it is that this woman has affected history and was chosen for a purpose by God, maybe since the foundation of the earth, but has been given to us as a gift as she gifted her son Jesus to the world. So, I'm going to ask you now to, uh, to stand and, uh, and I'll pray and then we'll enter into a time of worship.
Father, we are so grateful how you have taken people who seem so marginalized to us, the people that history just seems to overlook and never mentions. And from this margin, Lord, you've brought this, you brought this young woman to the very center of your will, the very center of your world. And you said, through her, my son would be born. This miracle, Lord, not only of conception, but a miracle of how it is that the one that the world ignores, you see as being so vital to your plans. And so, God, we, we all come into that place. Most of us are Joe and Jenny normal around here. And that means for us, Lord, we too, like Mary, can find the center of your will. Challenge us, Lord, when we see Mary in these weeks ahead. When we see her image, remind us of the humble state of your servant and how she understood that her devotional life was about the innermost thoughts of her being. Help us, Lord, put those thoughts on the altar as we consider in this season how we can be a blessing to others and not seek our own reward. So God, we thank you for the story of Mary and we pray that we pray that through your word and our reflection, we can right-size her into this story. Give her back a place that uh, is deserved by church traditions who seem to have exercised her from the story. But at the same time, pull down the mountains that have been created around her, that have put her on a lofty place, higher than she would ever want. Father, we thank you that as we look at your word, we find images and pictures of, of how it is that we worship you. And may we be the people like Mary who say, Lord, whatever your will be, let it be in my life. We ask this in Jesus' name.